Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo, and this is Novel Conversations. This week, I'm going to have a conversation about the novel, The House of Mirth, by Edith Wharton. And I'll be joined in conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Jennifer Weinbrecht and Pat Fernberg. Jennifer, Pat, welcome. Good morning, Frank. Hi, Frank. Before I get started, let me read you a brief introduction to our novel today, The House of Mirth. Published in 1905 and set primarily in New York during America's Gilded Age of the early 1900s, House of Mirth is the story of Lily Bart and her attempts to get into and stay in New York's high society set. How Lily learns the real value of her society friends, decides she cannot pay that price, and regains a sense of her own personal worth make up most of the story of House of Mirth. Pat, let me ask you, is this your first time reading House of Mirth? It is. Did you enjoy it? It was interesting and absorbing, but I can't actually say that it's a book that you can enjoy. Jennifer, how about you? First time reading House of Mirth? Yes. What was your reaction to it? I found it very interesting. I thought that the main character reminded me a lot of people that are in our world today, a very modern person. And sometimes I would be brought up short by the fact that they're holding reins in a buggy instead of driving a car because it seems so modern. And regardless of that society being set in early 1900, the dilemmas that Lily Bart faced, as you said, could apply today. Very much so. Pat, they go along to get along? Yes, you could say they go along to get along. I think also sometimes it's easier to do the wrong thing than to stand up and do what you know is right. Well, and it wasn't so much her doing the wrong thing. It was doing the thing that she felt was expected of her. Well, she deludes herself quite a bit. She doesn't like to look at what she's doing. I don't think she really ever does anything horribly wrong, but she certainly feels guilty. She's talking about furies haunting her dreams and things that she can't sleep because she feels so bad about things, and she sort of internalizes all the ills and evils of her social world. It clearly weighs on her by the end. Definitely. Okay, Pat, we said that this novel starts with Lily Bart. That's not quite true. Why don't you tell me how it really starts? It starts with a young lawyer named Lawrence Selden walking along the street, and he sees a woman he knows, Lily Bart. They're passing acquaintances, and he's always seen her before in large crowds of people. Now he sees her by herself waiting for a train. Yes, she's on her way to catch a train to visit friends in the country. She has missed the train and needs something to do to kill the time. But Jennifer, we know almost immediately from this novel that Lawrence Selden has a more than passing interest in Lily Bart. Let me read the first two sentences. Selden paused in surprise. In the afternoon rush of Grand Central Station, his eyes had been refreshed by the sight of Miss Lily Bart. Yes, he's definitely intrigued by her, and he sort of wonders why she's bothering with him. And why is she bothering with him? Do we know? Not really. She seems to enjoy his company. The people that she's going to see are in a social set that Lawrence Selden moves in and out of. He's not really part of them because he doesn't have enough money. Lily doesn't either, but her charm and beauty is such that she has a reputation in high society, so people People enjoy having her in their company. They use her popularity to enliven their parties. But everyone understands in their set that she needs to marry a rich man. Don't we get Lawrence Selden's musings that it's easier for a woman with no money to become involved with the high society set than it is for a man with no money? Yes, it is because he brings nothing to the table but charm and wit. But a beautiful woman is a trophy. 
She's something to be gained, something to be shown off, something to be acquired like fine art. But Lawrence, one of the things we learn right away is that he has recently been the boy toy of one of these high society married women. Well, Jennifer, how are they going to kill this time? They've got about an hour or so before Lily's next train. Well, they decide to go for some tea, but they end up going to Selden's apartment because it's very near where they are, and they sort of pass the building while they're walking along. It's not appropriate for Lily to go to a bachelor's apartment alone in those days. But she does it. Selden doesn't seem to have any qualms about inviting her up. Selden seems a little bit of a bohemian. He's not real interested in the social mores. It's interesting at this time, we get a little bit of back and forth between Lawrence Selden and Lily Bart that gives us the impression they might be interested in each other, but they both know it can't work out. Yes, they're discussing money. Actually, suggests that she's going up to this country home, Bellamont, to do a little matchmaking for herself. Lily is 29. She's passed up some chances. One of her comments is, I threw away one or two good chances when I first came out. I suppose every girl does. And you know I am horribly poor and very expensive. I must have a great deal of money. I love that line. So she's on her way. She hopes to meet her fate or at least she says she does. But Lawrence thinks about how great she looks in his apartment, how comfortable she seems. She's very comfortable in it. And she, I think, is toying with the idea of why couldn't it always be like this? Why couldn't I just be comfortable here? But she knows she can't. Because? Because Lawrence hasn't enough money. And she is very expensive. Okay, so they have their tea, and they have this conversation between them. Up until now, we've been in Lawrence Selden's head. We've had his thoughts about meeting Lily and what he thinks about Lily. And it's really when they're saying goodbye on the steps of his apartment, they shake hands, and all of a sudden the novel's perspective changes, and now we're in Lily Bart's head. Right. And she has an interesting encounter as she's leaving the apartment. Right. As she leaves the apartment, she runs into Simon Rosedale, who knows her, obviously, and they stop and talk, and he's very curious as to why she's in this particular location at this time. He's looking up at the building, and she tells him that she was visiting her dressmaker. Tell me a little bit about Mr. Rosedale. He's on the fringes of her set. Right. There's quite a big deal made in this book that he's Jewish, which is not acceptable in their social group. And his riche is all nouveau. And his goal is to become part of this social group. But at this point, he's already learned he can't buy his way into this set. Right. So he's working on social contacts with people. And he knows that being seen with Lily, being in her company, will add to his credit. There's also one more thing that we need to know about Mr. Rosedale. He owns the building, so he knows there's no dressmaker in there. So he immediately knows that Lily's lying to him. He just doesn't know why. Exactly. And he lets her know that he knows she wasn't there visiting her dressmaker. But now Lily has to hurry and catch the train because part of the reason she missed the other train is because she knows that Percy Grice, who is very wealthy is going to be at Bellamont, and she intends to accidentally meet him. Now, is this to be her latest conquest? He's eligible, he's colorless, and he's fabulously wealthy, and everyone wants to marry Percy Grice. Jennifer, does she meet him on the train? Yes, she does. She sees him reading by himself, being very shy, and she manages to manipulate the situation so that she's sitting with him, she's making tea for him, and they're having a very nice, cozy conversation. She's actually brushed up a little bit on old books, while she was at Lawrence Selden's apartment because Percy Grice's inheritance, his claim to fame, is an old book collection. Well, let me ask you then, is the conquest made on the train? Lily's making some good progress. He's looking forward to being at Bellamont, and they also get into a discussion about not only his books, but how much an agreement they are on everything. Let's talk about Bellamont. 
It's the home of who? Gus and Judy Trenner. And these are very good friends of Lily's. Judy Trenner is a very good friend of Lily's. She's very helpful to her and very supportive of her in her attempt to attract a good husband. And when she realizes that Lily's thinking about Percy Grace, she helps her arrange things. But Pat, there's a few other people at Bellamont for this soiree. There is. It's actually a week of adventures. Yes. Among these are the much-married and divorced Carrie Fisher, George and Bertha Dorsett, the Van Osbergs. And even Lauren Selden makes an appearance. After telling Lily he wasn't coming to the party, he shows up. Yes, he always manages to keep Lily a little off balance. And apparently the king of sports is the women outmaneuvering each other for the attention of the available single men, Percy Grice and Lawrence Selden. Even the married women. And that leads to Lily's misunderstanding when Lawrence Selden shows up. She doesn't know if Lawrence has come to perhaps see her or if Lawrence has come to continue this affair with Bertha Dorset. Right. When she sees him come, she wonders if he's come for her because of their recent meeting. She kind of hopes that he has. She does. She doesn't really want to admit it to herself because her mission this weekend is to capture Percy Grice and have him propose to her, and she's pretty sure she can manage that. How does that go? Very, very badly. What happens? (laughs) Apparently, they're all supposed to go to church. And doesn't she actually end up spending that day with Lawrence Selden? Yes, they go out for a walk, and she never makes it to church. And, of course, it's clearly pointed out to Percy Grice by Bertha that Lily was off with Lawrence Selden while she should have been in church. What else does Bertha point out to Percy about Lily Bart? Well, certainly during this time at Bellamont, while she's trying to capture Percy Grice, she's being careful not to smoke in front of him and make it seem like she never smokes. But the first night she was there, she went ahead and played bridge. Uh Uh-oh. She made clear to him later that she doesn't usually do that. She just got sort of tricked into it. But Bertha actually informs him that she's an avid bridge player and a gambler. That's right. She's an avid bridge player for money. Which is shocking to someone like Mr. Grice. Worse than her smoking. Yes, I think that's what drives him away, and he leaves the next day. Well, let's be clear now. He's driven away by the stories told to him by Bertha Dorsett. And the reason she's telling Percy these stories is she's getting back at Lily for flirting with Lawrence Selden. Absolutely. Bertha's a piece of work. And there's one more problem. Lily is deeply in debt. One must pay one's gambling debts, and Lily hasn't got the extra cash to pay for it. So you're telling me that what started out to be a fun, exciting week up in the highlands of New York, with Lily perhaps finding herself a husband, turns pretty disastrous. Yes, but we also find out that Lily has done this before. In the first few chapters, we're learning that she's had plenty of opportunities to marry rich men, and somehow, at the last minute, she sabotages herself, and she's done this throughout the last 10 years while she's been on the marriage market. She obviously is more attracted to Lawrence Selden than she is to Percy Grice. And we know she can't turn to Lawrence Selden at this time either. Who does she turn to? Gus Trenner, Uh Judy's husband. He's big in investments. He brags constantly about his success on the stock market. She asks him if he would invest a little money for her. Well, she doesn't come out quite that cleanly. No, she flirts with him. Eventually, he offers to lend her money, so he starts slipping her checks. This was not a very good moment for Lily Bart. No. No, and she convinces herself that this is all Wall Street earnings that he's making on her investment rather than that he's actually giving her money. Right. We're going to find out later that his investing prowess was not all that great. Yeah, he doesn't turn out to be such a great character either. But you're given the impression that he's more following animal instincts that he has. He's not the brightest guy, and he's not really good at these social games that these people play in this set that he's in. So there's maybe more excuse for him than there is for Lily. But on the other hand, she's not financially that astute. She can't figure out her own checkbook, so she's real naive about the workings of the stock market. And her mother has always told her that being beautiful will get her anything she wants. 
So she uses that tool to get what she wants. And essentially, that's her value to her friends. Exactly. I think right. we mentioned in the beginning, she's the bright light that a lot of these people invite to their parties in order to attract the rich moths to come to these soirees. <laughs> And always fatally for the moths. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So then all in all, this was not a very good week for Lily Bart. She loses her chance with Percy Grice. She clearly understands she has no chance with Lawrence Selden. She's upset one of her friends, Bertha, by flirting with Lawrence Selden. And now she owes another friend, Gus Trenner, a lot of money. And we all know that he's going to come back expecting repayment, one way or another. She has to go home. And we need to follow her home. But it's not really her home. She's living with an aunt, Aunt Julia. Yes, both her parents have died, and one of her relatives has taken her in. It's her father's sister. And Mrs. Peniston is very different from Lily Bart, as are all of her relatives on her father's side. They're very wealthy. They're from the old Dutch families of New York, but they are not part of the social set. It also says she was a woman who remembered dates with intensity and could tell at a moment's notice whether the drawing room curtains had been renewed before or after Mr. Peniston's last illness. So she occupies herself with minutia. She's just watching every detail of everything, and everything alarms her. And she gives Lily a little bit of an allowance. She wants Lily to have nice dresses and to look nice, and she's expecting Lily to find a rich husband, of course. But she doesn't pay a lot of attention to what she's doing. She's not a good counselor for her. She certainly doesn't take the place of a parent for Lily. We're actually told in the novel she didn't really want to take Lily in. The quote is, she had taken the girl simply because no one else would have her. She doesn't really want Lily around, but at the same time, she makes use of her. And even with the allowance, she just gives her money now and then. She's another person who's keeping Lily off guard. Right. She won't keep Lily in the custom that she wants Lily to become acquainted. Right. The house is often described as a mausoleum because it's airless, it's dark, nothing comes in, nothing goes out. Well, Pat, even though Aunt Julia's not much of a party goer, there's still plenty of opportunities for Lily to get out in a about. And she does. She's invited to the opera. Unfortunately, Gus Trenner is there, and he makes it very apparent to her that he expects her to spend some time with him because he's done her this favor of investing her money. And then she's observed by one of her cousins, Grace Stepney, who then goes to her aunt and reports on her. Grace is a poor relative. She's jealous of Lily's setup. She actually is very fond of the mausoleum. And what does she have to tell Aunt Julia? Well, first is that Lily has been smoking, which the aunt is at first incredulous. Can't even believe it. But that's not quite so bad as the next thing, which is that she's been accepting the attentions of married men. The worst of all, and the one probably closest to Mrs. Peniston's sensibilities, is that Lily has been playing cards for money and losing. See, and I would add a fourth thing to this, Pat. The result of all of these actions by Lily, it cost her a marriage to Percy Grice. And really, for Aunt Julia, isn't that the straw that breaks the camel's back? It is. But things are about to get even worse for Lily Bart. Yes, one evening, a charwoman shows up, and she has a rather threatening and bold manner about herself. And she presents Lily with a greasy package wrapped in newspaper of letters. We've met this charwoman before, or at least Lily has. Yes, she was on the steps when Lily left Lawrence Selden's apartment way back in the very beginning of the book. But here she has appeared and she has a packet of letters. They're sort of love letters to Lawrence Selden, pleading with him to continue their relationship. But Pat, why is this charwoman, this cleaning woman, bringing these letters to Lily? Because she thinks Lily wrote the letters, and she intends to use them as blackmail to help her husband get his job back. But Lily immediately realizes that these letters are actually from Bertha Dorset to Lawrence Selden. She recognizes the handwriting. But she buys them anyway? She buys them anyway because she feels protective of her friend Bertha Dorset, 
And Lawrence. And Lawrence. And she doesn't know what else to do, but she knows that she needs to get rid of this woman. So she buys the letters, tucks them away, never to be heard from again? Yeah, she thinks about burning them, but Mrs. Peniston doesn't keep a fire unless there's company. So there's no fire in the fireplace. And she ends up putting them in a box and hiding them in her closet. But Jennifer, even in the middle of blackmail and amorous entanglements with Gus Trenner, Lily continues to party and go out. Yes, and she's invited to be one of the players in a tableau. Explain that a little bit more. They would set up a scene from a famous painting or a famous moment in history. Live people would play the part of people in the painting. Sort of moving statues. And they've set this thing up so that you have an audience and you have a stage and then the curtain will open and you will see this tableau. And Lily's tableau is particularly mesmerizing for the men. The tableau that Lily wants is Mrs. Lloyd. It's a portrait by Joshua Reynolds. Mrs. Lloyd is crowned by masses of dark hair and dressed in gauzy material that outlines her figure. And it's the gauzy drapery that seems to be doing all the mesmerizing of the men. Absolutely. It's a chance to see all the things that they don't get to see any other time. And Lawrence Selden is particularly mesmerized. This is the way he pictures the real Lily Bart to be. And they meet at the party and step outside. And they have another of those moments that they have occasionally throughout the book together where they seem to step out of their social roles and really talk honestly to each other. And so they kiss. They do. And it seems like something more might come of this. But once again, as soon as they step back into the room, the spell is broken. Lawrence, however, is still thinking about this. And he goes home that night and writes a note to her, when can I see you? But before Lily and Lawrence can meet one more time, she has one more run-in with Gus Trenner. Yes, she receives a note from Judy Trenner saying, I'm coming down into the city. Would you meet me? And because things between Lily and Judy have been a little strained, a little cold, Lily is delighted by the chance to spend some time with Judy. That's right. Things have been a little tense between Judy and Lily ever since that week at Bellamont where the whole Percy Grice thing blew up. Right. But she's got a party to go to first, so she's not going to see Judy until after the dinner. That's right. After the dinner, she goes to the Trenner townhouse. And she asks to see Judy. And eventually it comes out that there's no one in the house but Gus. So really, Gus got her there on false pretenses. Yes, and he's been drinking, and he's rather scary, and he keeps blocking the door when Lily says, call a cab. I have to leave now. And it finally really dawns on her that this deal that she made with him where he was going to invest her money, there's something sinister about it, and she's not going to be able to get out of it. She just needs to repay the money. This thought finally occurs to her. But right now, she needs to get out of this situation. It comes very close to a physical assault. It does. And she finally gets out of the house, and she needs to go some safe place. And where does she decide to go? She goes to Gertie Farish's apartment. Gertie is a longtime friend of Lily's. And coincidentally, a distant cousin of Lawrence Selden's. And Gertie herself has just realized in the last few days that she is in love with Lawrence Selden and that Lawrence Selden is in love with Lily. So she's in a very bad mood when Lily arrives at her door. Gertie's a poor woman, but she's a very charitable woman. She has a simple apartment. She loves Lily dearly, though. She takes her in, and she sees how upset Lily is. Lily doesn't tell her exactly what's going on, but she knows Lily's very upset, so she takes care of her that night. But unbeknownst to Lily, when she left Gus Trenner's, she was seen by someone else. She was seen by Lawrence Selden and Ned Van Alstein, a distant relative of hers. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor. And every week, I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic 
be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food. So come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. Lawrence went to the party looking for Lily. He couldn't wait till tomorrow. He wanted to find her that evening. And he was told at the party that she had left. So he went for a walk with Ned Van Alstine, one of her relatives, and they just happened to be on that street corner at that moment. So he happened to be there to see her being escorted by Gus out to the carriage. Bad timing. And Lawrence knows that Judy's not in town because at the party he was told that Judy had become ill and hadn't come down. So like a typical male, he jumps to all the wrong conclusions and then gets on a slow steamer to Havana. Yes, he does. And the next day when Lily is back at her aunt's waiting for him to show up, hoping that she can finally confide in him, he doesn't show up. And then she reads in the paper that he's left the country, which is just devastating for Lily. But she doesn't stay devastated for long. She gets a surprise invitation. She's going to cruise the Mediterranean for three months with Bertha and George Dorset and some of their friends. But this invitation from Bertha Dorset doesn't really come from friendliness. No. Bertha is carrying on an affair, and she wants someone to cover for her. So she invites Lily so that Lily can be left alone with her husband, George. Well, she slides out from underneath. So Lily certainly knows that this is what her purpose is on this trip. Well, is George in on this? George is very jealous of his wife. It seems like he doesn't want to know that she's fooling around, but you get the feeling he knows. So Pat, for the first month or so, this trip goes pretty well. Lily's living the high life. She's left Gus Trenner and the money worries behind. So far, so good. Until Lawrence Selden's business takes him to Monte Carlo. And of course, Lily and her friends are... In Monte Carlo. And unfortunately, there is a huge scene. Apparently, Bertha Dorset has been caught in an indiscretion and is pinning it all on Lily. She's been out all night with Ned Silverton, and when her husband George discovers this and is very upset with her about it, Bertha gets out of the situation by publicly humiliating Lily, implying that Lily and her husband have been having an affair and basically kicking Lily off the yacht without a moment's notice. She turned on her immediately. Yes, she did. So Lily is now stranded in Europe. But wait, Lawrence is there. Yes, and Lawrence helps her that night by talking Jack Stepney and his wife Grace into letting Lily stay in their hotel that night. And then he helps her to get on her way home and out of Europe. Now, Lawrence, of course, knows that Lily was not having an affair with George Dorset, but he's also aware of her role in hiding Bertha's affair with Ned. So Lawrence Selden is not very happy with Lily Bart at this moment. No, but he can't stay angry. But Mm -hmm. she arrives home to find another shock, and it looks like Lily's fortunes may have turned up. What's happened? Her aunt has died, and Lily believes that she's going to be the sole heir. And there's going to be a will. Perhaps this is finally when Lily will get her inheritance. Yes, I think all of her relatives assume that she will. And when we meet again, we're in the drawing room of Mrs. Peniston's mausoleum home, and all the relatives are gathered there, and the attorney is slowly reading out the will. And now it is really a mausoleum. There's black drapery everywhere. Right. But Lily doesn't doesn't quite get the inheritance she expects, does she? No, Lily gets a very small fraction of it. She only gets 10000 but her cousin Grace Stepney gets it all. And this is the cousin that had ratted her out to her Aunt Julia. That's right. So Grace triumphs now. And Lily, of course, has no place to go. She has minimal money, and she owes Gus Trenner $10,000. Right, and even this inheritance isn't going to come to her until the will is probated. A year later. That's right. So what is Lily to do? 
Well, first off, instead of doing something reasonable, like going and moving in with Gertie Farish, maybe, and trying to look for some way to make some money or something, she decides to try to get back into the social circles. She gets Gertie to go along with her, and she goes to places during the lunch hour or tea hour when she thinks her friends might show up. And doesn't she actually try to pick up her old role of bright light to the fluttering moths with a new couple, a couple that's on the edge of society and looking to break in? The Gormers. The Gormers see her as something wonderful that has come their way. They've heard about her, and they know that she's going to be an asset at their parties. Yeah, and it works for a while until Bertha Dorset finds out about it. When Bertha's back in town, she starts making friends with the Gormers, and of course she's at a much higher level than Lily, and this is the inn that they want. Suddenly Lily sort of disappears out of their social circle. So now she's not even acceptable to the fringes of the society. She's really in desperate straits. Right. And her friend Carrie Fisher cooks up a scheme for her with Gertie's help. They don't know that her inheritance is all owed to somebody else. They think she's going to get this $10,000 pretty soon. And they think she can learn the hat trade and then she can set up a little hat shop for herself. Lily's going to get a job? Well, she's going to have a little store and sell hats. Unfortunately, Lily has no skill at doing the hats. She's tired. She's depressed. She's cold. She's malnourished. She's overtired. She can't sleep at night because she's worried. And she can't focus enough to do well in the hats, so she's dismissed. And she still owes this money to Gus Trenner. That's right, and she still has to make good on this. So this is probably the lowest point in the book now. During this time period, she runs into Mr. Rosedale, who very sympathetically takes her for tea, tries to help her. He tells her that he knows that she has these letters that the charwoman gave her a long time ago. And he urges her, if she will use these letters to expose Bertha and regain her social position... Simon Rosedale will marry her, and together they will be more important than all these other couples. They will take New York society by storm. That's right. Lily's beauty and talent combined with Rosedale's money would make an unbeatable couple. Right. But Lily will not betray her friends. Is it Bertha she won't betray, or is it Lawrence Selden she won't betray? Rosedale immediately has figured out the situation. He said, oh, you don't want to turn them in because they're from him, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's him, yeah. And also there's the feeling that this is an underhanded thing. But she is kind of reconciled to the fact that Simon Rosedale is becoming a little more attractive to her. She tells Mr. Rosedale the story of Gus Trenner's investment of her money, about how he tricked her. And how he's been demanding payment of some sort. Simon's very sympathetic to her, but he won't marry her unless she retakes her position in society. Otherwise, there's no, there's no benefit value to, to him. him. Well, tell me then, in the end, is that what she does? No, but there's a point where she takes off somewhere with these letters in her dress. But as she does, she passes Lawrence Selden's apartment. She sees that his light's on, and she goes up and talks to him. And while she's there, she tosses a letter in the fire before she leaves. She realizes, maybe I can do this to Bertha, but I really can't do this to my friend Lawrence Selden. And once she's tossed it into the fire, there's no turning back. I mean, she literally has crossed the Rubicon. Here. That was her last chance to perhaps make a little bit of money. And to write things with Bertha Dorset to get even with her, actually, and to clear her own situation. She finally takes the higher road. She sees in Lawrence a little bit of distance. She has the feeling that he doesn't totally believe in her. She leaves his apartment. She goes down into the park, and she runs into a young woman that she helped one time during one of Gertie Farish's moments where she involved her in her charity work. And this young woman takes her back to her apartment, very concerned about her, and Lily holds her baby. She hears her life story, and she has this realization that all the things that she's been pursuing are not real, that this love that this woman has with her husband and her baby... This is what life is really all about. And so she goes back to her apartment and 
finds the check from the will. And even though there's a moment of, well, I can do this and I can do that, she knows that the first thing she has to do is to straighten things out with Gus. So she prepares the deposit envelope for the bank, and she writes a check to Gus Trenner for the full amount. And with a sense of peace, she lies down to sleep, but has trouble sleeping. She lies down to sleep with some thoughts about how wonderful tomorrow is going to be. But she's just given up a lot of things that evening. She's seen what her life could have been with this other woman's sense of fulfillment. But as you said, she does have a feeling that maybe tomorrow will be better if she could just sleep tonight. Mm -hmm. And that really leads to the final scene of our novel. She's been taking increasingly greater doses of a sleeping pill. She's tired and she miscalculates the dose. And I got to tell you, this final scene was a bit of a shocker. I was not prepared for her to pass away in her sleep. Yeah, Lawrence wakes up in the morning after this encounter with her last night. He's finally decided that he is in love with her. He knows it's improper hour. It's too early, but he runs over to her apartment. So this is another moment of really bad timing. He wants to go through her things. Gertie urges him to go through her things. And he finds the envelopes on her desk. And he sees that her last communication was to Gus Trenner. And again, he has this wave of disgust, but then he opens it and he sees that it's a debt being repaid. And this is really where the novel ends. It ends as it began with Lawrence and Lily together. And the debt is paid. Psychically as well as financially. And that really ends our novel, The House of Mirth, by Edith Wharton. Without much mirth. Pat, I'm glad you mentioned mirth. The title of this novel is The House of Mirth, but this was not a very mirthful novel. Where did that title come from? The title comes from Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the house of fools is in the house of mirth. Ah, so clearly we had houses full of fools. We did. All right, well, obviously with a novel of this size, with so many characters, we can't get to all the moments in the novel. So at this time, if you have a character you want to mention that we haven't gotten to, or perhaps read a quote from the novel that we didn't get a chance to read, now's your chance. Pat, do you have something? There's a point where Gertie and Lawrence are discussing Lily and why Lily seems unable to just leave this life behind and go for her own happiness. Gertie says, You know how dependent she has always been on ease and luxury, how she has hated what was shabby and ugly and uncomfortable. She can't help it. She was brought up with those ideas and has never been able to find her way out of them. That's a great quote. And it's actually almost completely opposite from the quote that I want to read. This is Lily thinking about some of these so-called friends of hers. How dreary and trivial these people were. Lily reviewed them with a scornful impatience. Carrie Fisher, with her shoulders, her eyes, her divorces, her general air of embodying a spicy paragraph. I love the spicy paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) Young Silverton, who had meant to live on proofreading and write an epic, and who now lived on his friends and had become critical of truffles. Alice Weatherall, an animated visiting list, whose most fervid convictions turned on the wording of invitations and the engraving of dinner cards. Weatherall, with his perpetual nervous nod of acquiescence, his air of agreeing with people before he knew what they were saying. (laughs) Jack Stepney with his confident smile and anxious eyes, halfway between the sheriff and an heiress. (laughs) Gwen Van Osburgh with all the guileless confidence of a young girl who has always been told that there is no one richer than her father. (laughs) And these were her friends. (laughs) Well, I have a quote that's sort of in a different direction, but similar. There are a lot of comments in this novel about people that are really biting This is a description of Mrs. Grice, Percy Grice's mother. Remember that rich guy from the beginning of the novel? The guy with the collection of old books. Yeah. The quote is, 
Mrs. Grice, a monumental woman with the voice of a pulpit orator and a mind preoccupied with the iniquities of her servants, who came sometimes to sit with Mrs. Peniston and learn from that lady how she managed to prevent the kitchen maids smuggling groceries out of the house. <laughs> I have another one here about the Wetheralls. And really, this embodies that sort of high society attitude of being entitled. The Wetheralls always went to church. They belong to the vast group of human automata who go through life without neglecting to perform a single one of the gestures executed by the surrounding puppets. It is true that Bellamont puppets did not go to church, but others equally important did. And Mr. and Mrs. Wetherall's circle was so large that God was included in their visiting list. <laughs> That's good. There's a comment here where Judy Trenner is talking to Lily about Bertha. She says, you think I'm uncomplimentary? I'm not really, you know. Everyone knows you're the thousand times handsomer and cleverer than Bertha, but then you're not nasty. And for always getting what she wants in the long run, commend me to a nasty woman. <laughs> That's a good one, too. There were a lot of nasty women in this novel. <laughs> yeah. And superfluous men. Rosedale and Lawrence seem to be the only men with rounded characters and a bigger view. They were the only men I wanted to know something more about, certainly. Yeah, you're introduced to Simon Rosedale as if he's not a very attractive character, but by the end of the novel, you're really interested in him as a person. Well, and that's actually what I wanted to ask you about Lily Bart. At the beginning of the novel, Lily, to me, is a shallow, flighty young girl only interested in, as we said, finding a rich man. At the end of the novel, she's something different. Did you see that change as well? I did, but I felt that she was always keeping a distance from herself. Even at the end of the novel, you don't know if she actually committed suicide or if she just accidentally took an overdose of the sleeping medication. On the one hand, she seems like she's closing everything that was open in her life in those last 24 hours. But yet she says to herself, I just need a little bit more so that I can fall asleep and tomorrow is going to be a better day. There's always this sense that she's not facing what she's really thinking deep inside. Well, she may have miscalculated the dose, but she had already been warned Several times it was foreshadowing when she went mm -hmm. to the chemist with this fake prescription not to increase the dose. And yet, knowing that, she decides to gamble one more time. It just reminded me so much of the time when she felt that Percy Grice was going to propose to her that afternoon. And she totally avoided going to church that day. It's, again, as if she's always got the opportunity to commit fully to that social world, but deep down inside she doesn't believe in it, and she runs in the opposite direction, but she won't admit to herself that that's what she's doing. You know, and I think it's this ambiguity that makes this a novel worth reading for me. We're not sure. It's left for each person, with their own perspective and their own life's experiences, to finish this novel for themselves. And for me, that's what makes it a book worth reading. I hope you both enjoyed our conversation today about the novel House of Mirth. We did. Very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you both very much for coming in. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and today I had a conversation about the novel The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton. And joining me now for endnotes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Ted, how are you doing today? Great, how are you? Ted, Edith Wharton really followed the author's maxim. She wrote what she knew about. Yes, she was intimate with Manhattan society. What's interesting is the Pulse of Mirth was not originally a novel as we think of it. Scribner's, which was a national magazine, they published House of Mirth over 11 issues. It was a serialized novel. You know, Ted, I have to tell you, that came as a surprise to me. I'm familiar with the early English novels being published serially. But I was surprised to hear that this novel was published serially in America. That's because we tend to forget how magazines were done up into the 1960s. And publications like Saturday Evening Post would serialize 
Earl Stanley Gardner's Perry Mason work before it became a book. So the rest of the country wanted to read about New York society? They wanted to read about the upper elite Manhattan society, which frankly was really weird. Out of pace with the rest of the country socially. Well, what do you mean out of pace? Didn't the rest of the country aspire to this kind of society? They might have aspired to the money, but not to the ridiculous extremes that women were put to at the time. In fact, even the women of this time were in the process of changing their attitude. Yes. To better understand this, Ladies Home Journal really was a New York kind of publication. Had a national sale, but not like it came to have, whereas Scribner's was a general interest, mostly literary magazine. Scribner's published Edith Wharton, but Ladies Home Journal defined a Manhattan-style lady. And the editor, Margaret Sangster, commented, Lady was made to be the title of such women as she, dignified, courteous, with manners that may well be called finished, so they are touched with a gentle ceremony, so they are free from haste and rounded out with leisure. Woman is a term for busyness and service for everyday use and want. Lady may be defined as woman in a high state of civilization. Now, women who were from this generation outside of Manhattan society were individuals who were hardworking, they often had jobs, Some or their mothers or grandmothers had walked across the country to settle the New West. These were not dilettantes seeking to be kept. But they were interested in reading about this, what you call Manhattan society. Yes, because it was exotic, just as many of us sometimes read about Hollywood and the goings-on of people making 10, 15, 20 million dollars a picture. How did the serial sell, the magazine stories? I have no idea, but they ran it for 11 issues and kept buying from her. However, the book was an instant success of 140,000 copies. When did they publish the book compared to when the novel ran as a serial in the magazine? The serialization is run, and after the last month comes out, they publish it as a book. There's no way to compare the price of a book and the sales of a book to a magazine. So it was really free publicity with money coming to the publisher. Ted, during our preliminary discussion, you made an interesting comment that Edith Wharton, if she'd had a very much younger sister, that sister would not have recognized the society Edith Wharton was writing about. She would have recognized it. She would have rebelled against it. Within about 10 years of this time, women were saying, hey, I shouldn't have to marry money. I shouldn't have to be dependent on a man. I shouldn't have to do anything. They were marching down Fifth Avenue. Many of them were going out to the Southwest. It had opened up and joining the Fred Hervey operation as tour guides at the Grand Canyon. Well, Ted, this would have been a very different novel if Lily Bart had just known all she had to do was leave Manhattan. But I'm pretty sure that's an alternative Edith Wharton would never have considered. Unfortunately for Lily, Edith Wharton didn't know that either. She was very much a product of the elite Manhattan society and elite in Paris and London. Sure, they looked eastward toward Europe and never looked westward. Yes. And that's where we're going to end today's conversation about the novel The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton. Ted, I want to thank you for coming in and bringing us your endnotes today. You're welcome. I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Pat Fernberg and Jennifer Weinbrecht. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Today I had a conversation about the novel The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton. Until next week, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.
This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.